This week at Hope Point. Well, we have to remember for God to be omnipotent, to be all powerful, to be reigning and ruling over all things, Satan must fall underneath that umbrella. You have to realize Satan can do nothing in your life, Satan can do nothing to this world that has not been pre approved and authorized by the sovereign providence of God. That's encouraging for us. Nothing can happen to you. Not a single thing can happen that has not been run by God, that Satan has not come first and asked for permission from God first, because ultimately Satan operates underneath the sovereign power of God. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's holy word. Well, as I said, we're going to be in the book of Luke today, so I hope you have your Bible, and if you do, you can go ahead and turn it to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22. Uh, In a few moments, we'll be sharing the Lord's Supper, which also took place in Luke chapter 22. Uh, Jesus shared this meal with his disciples uh, on the final night of his life, uh, where he would also wash their feet. And then a little bit later on, he's a little uncomfortable, he's going to call out Peter uh, in a way that kind of caught him off guard for sure. And so we're going to look at that today. Um, Obviously, the disciples can sense in this point of the text some building tension. Uh, Things are escalating with with Jesus's situation. Um, And I'm sure in his voice, even the the tone of his voice, they can sense something is about to happen. Just the imminence of what's getting ready to happen that night, no doubt. And so we see Peter's passion that we're so used to, his fervor, his kind of, you know, uh, just his, his demeanor on display in this, in this text. And he's quickly confronted uh, with our opening verse here, which is verse 31. Again, we're in Luke 22. Verse 31 is where we'll begin. And we're going to just see here through his story, I'm going to tell you, for those of you who are organized and like to know, we're going to see three parts of Peter's story. Uh, and it, it gets a little ugly in the middle, but things, things work themselves out. This first part here is the setup, verses 31 through 34. Let's read together. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Here's the setup. Jesus is setting things up for Peter, predicting the future in a way that only Jesus can do and saying some things about Peter that catch him off guard because you'll notice in these two verses, in Peter's words and in Jesus's words, just this pretty wide gap between Peter's perception of his faith and who he is and the reality of how frail he actually is in Jesus' eyes, right? I mean, you you see it here. Jesus, I'll go with you to death. Put me in prison for you. No matter what, I'll do it. And then Jesus saying, you're not even gonna be willing to mention my name in a few hours. There's a gap, a wide gap between where Peter thinks he is and where he actually is. And I know for me, at least, I'm a lot more like Peter than I would care to admit. Maybe you're in the same boat. This overconfidence or maybe just lack of self-awareness, I don't know which one it is, but we sometimes miss who we actually are in light of who we may think that we are. And Jesus is quick to call it out. Uh, When you look at, at what he says to address Peter, even right off the bat in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, it says the name twice 
And then he says, behold, that's like a strong warning there. It's just a signal there. I want to get your attention, Peter. Say your name twice with the word behold. Parents, you can start using that word behold after you do the first and the middle name for your kid when you're really trying to get their attention. Just throw in behold. It it grabs their attention a little bit more. But notice he refers to him as Simon as well. Now, when Jesus earlier in in the the gospels would call out Simon as a fisherman and say, you're going to become a fisher of men, you're going to follow me, he gives him a new name, right? He calls him Peter, changes his name which means rock. And, and we, we hear even in the, the naming, the new name that, that Jesus gives Peter, a, a new identity, a new calling, a new purpose in life. But here, he reverts back to Simon. He says it twice. Almost as if to acknowledge, and I'm not in Jesus' head, but almost as if to acknowledge, I've made you something new. You're Peter, but there's still some Simon left in you. There's still some of you in the old you that's, that's coming back, that's creeping back up here some fear that you're, gonna, you're getting ready to experience. There's still some Simon in you. And he addresses that right off the bat. And then he addresses the next character in this little story here, Satan. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, all four of the gospel accounts have this little story in them, all four. Share the story of Jesus telling Peter he's going to deny him. But Luke is the only one that mentions the part Satan played in all this. And I think that's significant for us to point out because we tend to be in like one of two camps when it comes to Satan. We either kind of dismiss the spiritual realm completely or we put way too much emphasis on it and are a little too afraid of it. Here he's mentioning it to remind us that beneath the surface of this encounter that Peter's about to happen in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house around the fire when he will deny Jesus, beneath the surface of that physical experience, there's a complete spiritual realm in which so much more is going on below the surface. Satan is actively at work battling against Peter's own heart to pull him away from Jesus. And Luke calls it out. Luke mentions that. And we need to mention that too. I think we're, I I am very quick to dismiss the spiritual aspect of the the hardships and the difficulties and the temptation and the struggles of my own life, my own week, even this week, to to ignore the the work that the enemy is seeking to do in in my own life. It's called out here by Luke uh, very quickly. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, I want to point out too, when he says you here, this is, this is key. We got to notice this. When he says you, Satan demanded to have you. We're going to do a quick translation here. This is the Crittenden uh, Revised Standard Edition. Really, he's saying y'all. Um, you there means y'all. That was the, 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 what Jesus meant there. It's the plural word that's used. He's not just referring to Peter. He's talking to Peter, but he's saying you and the disciples with you here. This, this group that he's speaking to, all, all, all 11 of them that are going to remain with him uh, in the upper room here, Satan demanded to have you. He's calling out the strategy here that the enemy is seeking to do. We, we know coming up, when Jesus goes to the garden, Satan is going to try and thwart Christ's plans. He's going to try and get Jesus to change his mind. He's going to tempt him to not go to the cross. This is why Jesus has to plead in prayer for strength. This is why he's sweating blood. But for Satan, if he can't get Jesus to not go to the cross, well, the next best thing would be to get Jesus' few followers who have been entrusted with the message to carry on and to follow after him. If he can get them to fall away through all this, well, at least that's, he'll settle for that. So he's demanding to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Let me go ahead and clear that out so I don't forget. 
Is it going to go away? There we go. Um, and this sifting of wheat is, is key because you, you see this picture here. We, we might think sifting like wheat is in like this purifying thing. You know, they, they take these big bundles and just beat them on this barrel to separate things, loosen all that stuff, and then they'll sift it through a process. Satan's not meaning this whole sifting in wheat through the, in, the, in the sense of like purifying. He's thinking about it in that violent sense of beating it down. If you're the wheat, if Peter's the wheat, if the disciples are the wheat, they're being beaten down over this barrel uh, with the hopes that they will fall away, that they will doubt God. This sounds very similar, reminiscent of what, uh, what Satan did to, to Job earlier in the Old Testament, right? Where he went to God and, and asked to put Job to the test, to beat him over the barrels of, of, a, of the sifting process. And hopefully he would reveal his true colors, right? That he didn't really believe in God. He didn't really love God. He wasn't really devoted to God. Very similar here. But what I want you to notice about this process here, Satan demanded to have you. In other words, as the Greek would say, he obtained you by asking. Satan had to ask God to do this. And we, we cannot miss that. Because I think if we're not in that first camp I mentioned where we dismiss the work of Satan, we might also be, we might, if we're not there, we might be on the other end of the spectrum where we just think he's this almighty power of evil, as if it's your life is like this equal battle of good versus evil. You got, you got God on one side, you got Satan on the other side, and who's going to win? I don't know. They're fighting it out. They're both equal. And that's a completely inaccurate way to look at God's power and Satan's power. There's nothing equal about the two of them. Satan always falls underneath the authority of God. As John MacArthur says it, love this quote, the devil is God's devil. Satan only operates within the parameters and the limitations which God himself has established for him. Satan is the servant of God. Let those words sink in for a second. And just remember, I didn't say those. John MacArthur said those words. That's, those are heavy words to hear. It doesn't sound quite right. Satan is the servant of God. Well, we have to remember, for God to be omnipotent, to be all-powerful, to be reigning and ruling over all things, Satan must fall underneath that umbrella. You have to realize, Satan can do nothing in your life. Satan can do nothing to this world that has not been pre-approved and authorized by the sovereign providence of God. That's encouraging for us. Nothing can happen to you. Not a single thing can happen that has not been run by God, that Satan has not come first and asked for permission from God first because ultimately Satan operates underneath the sovereign power of God. And that's exactly what we see happening here with, with uh, this request to take the followers of Christ and sift them like wheat. Satan is God's Satan. He's over it all. Now, we might ask the question, why does God let him have what he asked for? Why not just say No. I mean, instead, we hear Jesus saying, so I prayed for you, which I appreciate. Thank you for praying for me. But like, why, why not just let me not go through it? You, wouldn't, you could save the prayer. You wouldn't have to pray for it. Again, we must look to the sovereign purposes of God, that when he authorizes Satan to act, he is doing something that would not have been achieved otherwise. He's allowing what the enemy meant for evil to turn for good some way, somehow, We'll have to wait and see because we're not going to get to that in act one of this story. This is just the setup. But you keep watching. We'll see how God twists this on Satan very quickly. So he, he prays for, for them uh, as they go through this process. And then 
it, the denial actually happens. I want to go ahead and turn your attention down to Act 2. This is called the setback. So set, uh, Act 1 was the setup. Now we're at the setback. Same chapter here, chapter 22, but looking down at verse 54, we're going to see if what Jesus said would happen actually happened. I'm going to read beginning 54 and go down to 62, if you want to follow along with me. So then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. So the other disciples abandoned him like Jesus predicted they would. Remember that plural, y'all? He wants to have y'all, y'all abandon me. And they all left him. Peter follows to the, to the house of Caiaphas and hasn't abandoned him yet. But here we go. They sat down together in the courtyard. Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. A servant girl, not an armed guard, not, nobody strong, powerful, overpowering, a servant girl. And he was intimidated. He denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not, number two. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. One of the other gospels will tell us this guy who's making the third accusation was a relative of Caiaphas's servant who got his ear chopped off by Peter a little bit earlier. So you, you see why he had a reason to call him out here. Again, Peter was bold enough then to go Mike Tyson on somebody's ear when he was in the presence of Jesus. But now that Jesus is no longer sitting with him by the fire, he's ashamed, he's a coward. So the third time, he denies him. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Wow, all at once. This is all coming together. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said, said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So the setback here, Peter does actually follow through with Jesus' predictions and he does deny him. Even though Jesus like warned him this was gonna happen, he still failed. He, he couldn't manage to remember that warning and, and hold fast to the name. He was afraid. So he denied the name of Christ. And I'm certain, I mean, I, I, I just feel certain that in that moment, says he remembered the Lord's saying. I feel like that's probably not the only saying of the Lord he remembered. I would venture to guess he probably also remembered the saying of the Lord in Luke 12. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before, before men will be denied before the angels of God. Peter likely remembers these words of Christ. And maybe this is part of why he went away and wept bitterly. He has just done the very thing he thought he would never do. Crossed the line he never thought he would cross. Even despite the, the warning of Christ, like literally an hour earlier, or however, you know, maybe a little more than an hour, but so quick to forget. And it's so interesting to me how all of this is woven into one moment. I mean, again, we see the providential working of God that in one instant, Peter deny, makes this third statement of denial just in time for the rooster to crow, just in time for all of the busyness that's going on in this situation at Caiaphas's courtyard to lock eyes with Jesus. No coincidence there that all of this would happen at once. This is Jesus orchestrating things bit by bit, second by second to have a moment with Peter that really begins to do this work in his heart. I mean, I hope that as we see this moment, 
of Peter in his moment of denial, looking into the eyes of Jesus and just see such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Because Jesus knew exactly what Peter was going to do. He called it out. And yet that didn't stop him from, again, just a little earlier, breaking bread at the table, handing it to Peter to eat, saying, here's my body for you. Pouring the wine, saying, here's my blood poured out for you. He would then get down on a knee and wash Peter's feet. All the while knowing exactly what Peter would do for him a little bit later. And then, almost like poetic justice, to have this moment where he gets to just look at him. Lock eyes with him. As if to say, Peter, I see you denying me. I see what you've done. Notice what he doesn't do there. Jesus, in looking at him, doesn't fling up his arms and say, I told you you'd do that. Just like I said. Forget these people. He doesn't do that. He doesn't stop his tracks towards the cross either and turn and go the other way. Never mind, I changed my mind. This moment where he looks at Peter in the midst of his sin, says, I see you, what you've just done, and yet I will still go to the cross. You have denied me, but I will not deny you. What a picture of what Christ has done for Peter. Doesn't change his mind at all. And this is the Jesus I hope we see today in just such clarity because this is the Jesus that has done the same for you. He says, I have seen you. I've seen what you've done. I've seen who you are. And that hasn't changed my mind. I have a hard time getting past that because I know some of the things he's seen. I know who I've been. I see you, Peter. Wow. This is the beauty of what Christ has done. This is the beauty of the gospel. His mercy outruns our misery, as Charles Spurgeon puts it. He's ahead of us. I mean, he tells Peter beforehand, you're gonna do this. I'm still going. You'll do it again. You're gonna stumble again. You're gonna slip up again. I still did it. I'm ahead of you. I'm running ahead of your sin and offering mercy for you. This is the beauty of the gospel. Romans tells us that clearly in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were weak, as Jesus looks at Peter in the middle of his sin, I see you, I'm still going. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. That what you think disqualifies you from the presence of God is exactly what he's using to draw you to himself, to say, this is me, not you. I'm doing this. I'm going to the cross. Even though none of you guys are gonna follow me there, I'm going on your behalf. Go back to verse 32 where we began to see the, the work Jesus is doing to fight for Peter. Uh, I, I love this. He says, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat, but what? But I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And we, we see like, well, in a sense, sort of Peter's faith did fail in the moment. He faltered, he fell away, but his faith has not ultimately failed. He's not fallen away. As Andrew, uh, Alexander McLaren would put it, eclipse is not extinction. The momentary untruthfulness of one's convictions is not the annihilation of these convictions. Peter's faith was eclipsed in that moment, but it was not extinct. Does that make sense? We see the difference there. He had a moment of weakness where he faltered, he stumbled, he fell, but his faith was not eliminated. It was not extinct. It was not out, just eclipsed. And that's what Jesus' prayer for him is, that it would not fail completely, that you would not fall away. More on that in a moment. We have to see Jesus busy fighting for Peter here, though, through the act of prayer. Jesus praying for Peter not to fail. While the enemy is busy working against Peter, and we have lots of proof of that in Scripture. Pastor Richard, a few months back, shared this with us from Revelation 12. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. As the enemy, as Satan is constantly just throwing up accusations at God. Do you see them? You see what they just did? Do you see him? Do you see who she has become? Throwing up these accusations to try and get God to, I mean, as if to ask God, are you sure about them? Really? And folks, here's the thing about Satan's accusations that are going up night and day, day and night to the throne of God. They're accurate. At least for, I won't speak for you there. They're accurate for me, I promise. The things Satan has to say to God about me are true. And yet all the while that he's doing this, that he's accusing me before God, scripture tells us that Jesus is doing something for us. Who is to condemn? The accuser cannot condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, praying for us on our behalf. What good news. Accusations are going up. Yeah, and they're true. They're accurate. They are condemning. But the work of Christ is greater. And it has overpowered the work of the enemy. And all the while this is happening, Christ is sending up prayers. He's at the right hand of God, praying on our behalf. As Dan preached just a few weeks ago from Hebrews 7 about our high priest, he's able to save from the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is busy praying for us that we would not fail in our faith. So he says, Satan demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And if you're like me, I'm sure you can see Peter just getting in his own head. Yeah, but Jesus, I denied you in front of the servant girl, but I have prayed for you. I mean, Jesus, like sitting around the fire, I did it two more times, but I have prayed for you. Jesus, I don't, I don't feel like I can be the thing you're saying you want me to be. But I have prayed for you. Jesus, Satan is accusing me night and day. But I have prayed for you. Yeah, but you don't get it. His accusations are true. But I've prayed for you. Jesus, I'm faltering in my faith. 
but I have prayed for you. We still talking about Peter? Feels a little too close to home for me. Jesus is praying for us that our faith would not fail. And let me tell you something beautiful about the way Jesus prays. Remember, he's fully God, holy God, which means he perfectly knows the will of God, exactly what's on God's heart, exactly what God wants to happen. So that's an advantage we don't have. Like when we pray, when we make requests to God, there's always that little caveat at the end, right? If it be your will. We have to throw that in, right? We can ask for whatever we want. If it's your will, God. Jesus doesn't have to pray that way. Jesus knows the perfect will of God. And you know what that means about your prayer? About his prayer on your behalf? When Jesus says, God, I pray that his faith would not fail. God, I pray that her faith would not fail. Guess what the answer always is when Jesus prays for it? Yes. Did you hear me say that? When Jesus prays that your faith would not fail, if you are in Christ, if you are one that's been chosen by him, and he says, God, don't let his faith fail, the answer is yes. What an encouragement for us to know that assurance that if I am in Christ, I am kept in Christ, not because of me, but because of him, what he is doing on my behalf. I love to go back to McLaren, what he says about what this reality would do to us, how it would take the sting out of sorrow and blunt the edge of temptation. If we realize that, that Jesus is praying for you, that your faith would not fail, that you would not fall away. Oh, for a faith that shall rend the heavens and rise above the things seen and temporal and behold the eternal order of the universe, the central theme throne and at the right hand of God, the intercessor for all who love and trust him. This is the beauty of Christ praying on your behalf. And it's what he does for Peter despite the fact that he knows Peter will deny him. What a beautiful thing for us to see. Believer in Christ, child of God, I can assure you of this. Every single assault on your faith, every temptation that you walk through, every hurdle that you have to find a way to climb over, not only has God authorized it to happen, in the moment you're experiencing it, Jesus is on his knees at the throne of God praying for you. That changes things. Changes things completely for us. Let's see what it does to change change Peter. Act three here. We've seen the setback, but here's act three. How's he going to respond? This is the comeback here. So go, go back to, to the, the moment where, where Peter looks at Jesus and it says in verse 62, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Not the best start for a comeback, is it? Like going out crying, but this is, this is monumental. Pastor Richard pointed this just last week about the picture, or two weeks ago, about the picture of repentance, leaving and weeping bitterly as he recognizes his sin. But he doesn't stay there. God is not done with him here. This is just the beginning of the work. Matter of fact, when we go back to what Jesus said in verse 32, when he prayed that your faith would not fail, what does he say very, right after that? And when you have turned again, 
turned again. That's, that is the picture of repentance. When you have turned back, when you've been restored, it's a picture of repentance. You have fallen. Your faith failed you in the moment, but you can turn again. You can repent. And I love the beautiful confidence of Jesus when he says it. When you have turned again. Not if. Not I hope. Peter, you will turn back. And what will you do? You will strengthen your brothers. This is exactly what we see Peter doing. Running to the, to the empty tomb. Meeting the risen Savior. Boldly, through the, with the fire of the Holy Spirit, preaching on the day of Pentecost and thousands coming to, to faith in Jesus. And then pinning my favorite book in all of Scripture, 1 Peter, and the sequel. For what purpose? To strengthen the brothers and sisters of Christ that had been scattered. Peter would not have experienced that. Peter would not have been equipped and strengthened to do that had he not walked through this trial. And so he would say in 1 Peter, this is kind of to, to bring it up, I think this is my loophole to get to preach on 1 Peter. Uh, I don't get many chances to do that. But in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, Peter would say this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise. Notice, tested genuineness of your faith. Remember the sifting like wheat? I told you that what the enemy meant for evil, Jesus could turn it for good. What the enemy meant to use as a way to beat down the followers of Christ and make them fall away was a scenario in which Jesus was using, much like the fire, the refining fire that he talks about here in 1 Peter, what Jesus was using to sift out and to purify what was still Simon in him. Get rid of that extra Simon to get down to the good stuff. So you go back to this picture of the sifting. It begins there. Then we get to this step here where we, we finally got it down and we're just sifting out the chafe. And then finally you get to enjoy the good stuff, the grain. And this is the test that Peter was put through. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of, of Jesus and the warning, he held on. And his faith was strengthened because of it. Uh, uh, one more quote. And it may well be that a faith that has made experience of falling and restoration has learned a depth of self-distrust. Depth of self-distrust. Don't be overconfident in yourself. A firmness of confidence in Christ. A warmth of grateful love, which it would never otherwise have experienced. This is what has happened to Peter. This is what sort of launches him into this comeback stage of I'm I'm back because of what he's experienced and what he's seen in the person of Christ. But there's one more verse I need to show you in 1 Peter. It's the verse that, that comes right before, uh-oh, sorry. There we go, 1 Peter 5, 1, 5. The thing that Peter said in verse six makes you rejoice is this right here, verse five, the verse that comes right before it. He's talking about the scattered believers who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That word guarded right there, guarded through faith is a, is a really critical word for us to understand because this explains exactly what happened to Peter in the moment of his denial. That guarded is the Greek word uh, frudreo, which has two meanings. Um, the first is to be protected from attack, 
This is the general view we think of when we think about like eternal security. Um, you know, as Christians, that, that you're, you're safe. You, you, you can't be taken out of the family of God. Kind of this idea that God has built a wall around you or maybe you've heard it that he's got you in the palms of his hand and nothing can snatch you out of there. And we've got that sense of the word here for sure. That, that's the first definition of guarded. But if you're anything like me, I, I'm not as concerned about that. I'm much more suspicious about this guy. I'm not as concerned that someone might pull me out of the family of God as I am concerned that I might walk away. That's my biggest concern. And I don't have what it takes. I know myself, like I said earlier. I know my own uh, quickness to, to, to fall. I know how quick I am to forget. I know my doubts. I, I know all of this stuff. When, when Paul says to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, I'm the, I'm the work part that I'm, I'm concerned about that, I, that I won't be there. I won't be, be uh, able to stay in there long enough for Jesus to finish working on me. Maybe I'm not alone there, I don't know. But clearly that seemed to be the biggest thing for Peter as well, himself. I mean, the threat in front of him was not a big deal. This little slave girl, I don't think was a big dangerous threat to Peter, but his own doubt, his own fear internally is what caused him to deny Christ, caused him to fall away. And so it's important for us to see here that second definition of guarded. Yes, guarded means that he keeps you from being pulled out, someone uh, taking you out. But the second definition for guarded is kept from escaping. Sort of an inward barrier. God says, I'm not gonna let you run away. And that might be more meaningful than the first definition. I need to hear that. That just as my initial salvation, my entrance into the family of God was not in my doing, but in the work of Christ, what keeps me in the family of God is also the work of Christ on my behalf. It's not all riding on me. Thank goodness for that. Because if it were, I most certainly, certainly would fall away. I'm guessing you would too. Pretty certain Peter would have. If it weren't for the grip of Christ on our life, warning us as he does all throughout scripture, hold on, keep in the faith, endure, remain in me, over and over and over again. These warnings, they, they keep us in. And then these prayers, I'm praying for you. And then this reminder of why you're here to encourage the saints, to, to strengthen the brothers as a reminder. Don't, don't fall away. You've got, you got the, the, the saints to care for. We need all of this to hold us in, to protect us from falling away, to keep us from turning our backs on the one who gave himself for us. This is, this is what we have to remember. Um, I love the way Jesus said in John, and again, Richard read this verse recently, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ will not lose any of his own. He will keep us in. And to go back to what I read from Luke earlier, where we saw Luke denying Christ, where Luke said, if you deny me before God, I will deny you before man. The very follow-up verses that, verses 11 and 12, this is what Jesus did to clarify his point. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit 
will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. When you're in a moment where you might deny me, what's going to keep you from denying me? Your own resolve, your willpower, your allegiance to, to Jesus. Jesus, I'll chop an ear off for you. Not enough. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Peter wasn't able to not deny Jesus until Jesus finished what he came to do. In being beaten and killed and then rising from the grave and then ascending to heaven and then sending the Holy Spirit to fill the hearts of his, of his children. Now we have the strength to do what we could not do before. So not only is it Christ that keeps us in relationship with him, it's also the Holy Spirit who equips us to do the things that, that caused us to deny him beforehand. This is such a, a key thing for us to, to realize. Just as he is the founder of our faith, he is the protector of our faith. He will teach us what we ought to do. Now, I, I need to close with this. My time has, has run out. I'm seeing that now. Um, all of this, if, if nothing else, to just draw us into the picture of Jesus, to just... See how irresistibly beautiful he is. To do what he has done for us, knowing who we are, knowing what we had done to him. I mean, he breaks bread with those who will betray him. He washes the very feet that will run away in fear a few hours later. He lifts up the very names of the men who will deny his name in prayer to God silences the accusations of the evil one, dies for the very people who seek to take his life. And the things he offered to Peter, a seat at the table, a broken piece of the bread and the cup, washing, cleansing, forgiveness, the power of the Holy Spirit, he offers to you today, freely offers it to you today. And remember, he does all of that looking right at you. Seeing you as he saw Peter in your sin, in your brokenness. Just take what I've offered for you. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Though we have denied him, he has not denied us. Let's cling to that. Let's surrender to him. If we have to weep bitterly first to, to get to that point as we acknowledge our sin before God, let it be so that we can embrace the words, you are forgiven. Come walk with me in new life. This is what he's offered to you today. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.